Hey everyone, it's John Kitchens. You know, one of the things I love about this podcast format is, is that I have a chance to meet so many interesting people and talk to them. And sometimes we're just talking off the record before we go on. And uh, after, after we were done recording this uh, with Liz and Maria, we just kept chatting and, and really had a great conversation. So I thought it was really interesting enough that we would package it together at the end of this episode to just kind of hear some of the, you know, conversations that we had uh, around vitreous opacities, how we manage patients, some of our uh, pearls and techniques. Um, so when this conversation comes to a close, be sure to stick around uh, for a few minutes for a behind the scenes look at our conversation. Welcome to New Retina Radio, and this series is called Vitreous Opacities. I'm John Kitchens with Retina Associates of Kentucky, and on this episode of Vitreous Opacities, we will explore tactics and strategies used by surgeons before cataract surgery or vitreous opacity surgery. If you're joining us on CRST, the podcast, where this is also being released, feel free to go back in the new Retina radio feed to hear further discussions on this topic. On this episode, I'm joined by two guests. First, we have Maria Baracall from Baracall & Associates in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Welcome, Maria. Thank you, John. Nice to be here. And from Virginia and the Virginia Eye Consultants in Virginia Beach, we have Elizabeth Yu. Thank you, Dr. Yu, and welcome to the podcast. Dr. Kitchens, I'm honored. I'm excited. Absolutely. So one of the, uh, one of the really interesting things about this uh, podcast is that we have both the front of the eye with Liz and the back of the eye with Maria. And I want to start off with you, Liz. Um, how common are vitreous opacities uh, in an anterior segment practice? I think that, I mean, vitreous opacities is something that affects them, you know, all of us and all of our practices, but um, patients are coming in oftentimes very, very surprised, but, you know, patients are coming in for their cataract evaluations, not recognizing that getting rid of their cataracts, not going to get rid of their tearing and it's not going to get rid of their floaters. They think that somehow everything related to their vision is related to the cataract itself. So delineating that is clearly important. And you do a lot of multifocal and premium IOLs, Liz. Um, how do you talk to a patient that's considering a premium IOL about the potential for bothersome floaters after their surgery? An interesting question. And, you know, I don't actually specifically go into um, floaters becoming um, worse after surgery. At the same time, if I do notice that on the examination that I'm going through with the patient, that there are vitreous opacities, either a PVD or otherwise that I'm seeing, I do mention that to them. And, and I like to kind of get a sense of how bothersome those floaters are to the patient. Reason being, it tells one a little bit about their personality. If a patient has a hard time adjusting to a new watch, adjusting to the rim of glasses, or adjusting to vitreous floaters, then clearly you're going to have a difficult time adjusting to any of the decrease in contrast sensitivity that is associated with a diffractive lens implant that's going to split light. But then number two, it's also, again, to let patients know that um, if their floater is bothersome, let's talk about that because that 
in a, a, a patient who's got a lens implant that requires that, that's, that central visual acuity where all that light is kind of being focused in different parts of the eye, um, if that's not clearly uh, well delineated for the patient, then they may have a difficult time with um, appreciating their quality of vision. And Liz, do you partner with a retina surgeon? Um, how do you how how should an anterior segment surgeon find the right retina person to partner with to help solve these problems for patients? In my opinion, you know, I, whenever there is a patient who has a um, symptomatic floater, I always do um, have them. I find out one, obviously the duration of it. And then two, if it looks like it has been going on only for a short period of time, that's obviously just kind of managing that and medical management, delaying surgery. But if there is a chronicity to it, I do like to introduce them to the retina doctor just so that they can get a sense of what a floaterectomy you know, entails. Um, and what I try to do is to not do floater surgery before cataract surgery. But if it is that truly between the cataract, so their quality of vision, and if it looks like that, that cataract really is, you know, the secondary issue and the floater is the bigger issue, then I'll have that floater surgery done, particularly if it's been more than six to 12 months. But that also, again, even after the floater surgery affects the decision-making of what kind of lens implant that I would choose for that patient. Because again, a diffractive IOL would not maybe be the best option for that patient's personality. So now I'd, I'd really like to turn to, to Maria in the back of the eye uh, standpoint. Maria, are you finding that you're doing more and more vitrectomy surgery for floaters in patients with premium lenses? Uh, yes. Uh... Thank you, John. That's a very good question. The premium IOLs have really taken off and that technology has improved a lot, but it still has, you know, some uh, drawbacks. Uh, premium IOLs, you know, patients really expect to see perfectly at distance, intermediate uh, distance and at near. And oftentimes, you know, they're very surprised when they have floaters or any media opacities in the middle that may exacerbate their glare. You know, uh, they're all told that they're going to get some glare when they're driving at night uh, and that they may have to wear glasses sometimes for the very small print, but most of them really want perfect vision, like when they were 15. Uh, so I think the type of patient that gets a premium IOL tends to be a younger and more demanding uh, patient who really wants to see perfectly. So Maria, from the, from the retina specialist standpoint, what, what advice would you give to the anterior segment surgeon as they start to uh, consider vitreous opacities and the impact that has on, on their patients that are, that are going to get a multifocal or a premium IOL? Uh, yes, as Elizabeth mentioned, you know, many patients think that the cataract not only clouds their vision, but also is the cause of floaters or of dry eye or of tearing. So I would be very specific in looking and examining the patient to see if some floaters, because if they complain of like clouds or of moving things around the eye, then you know that they have a floater complaint. And uh, as a cataract, you know, surgeon, I think they need to be, they need to have explained to them uh, that the cataract removal will make them see better, but that any floating opacities 
will remain there. They may not be bothersome to them once the cataract is removed, but if they, they are still bothering them, they can always be removed by a vitreous surgery. You know, I'll tell you, Marie, I think that's great advice. The other thing is it's really easy to just have your technician or, or even on a flow sheet ask, do you have, you know, things that move in your vision? Do you, are you bothered by floaters? I think anytime you can get ahead of that subject um, and implant the idea that that's, that, that that's a possible problem that could, you know, I don't want to say be exacerbated, but be more noticeable after you have a premium IOL, the patient at least is acknowledged. Hey, wait a second. They mentioned this before. Elizabeth, I want to come back to you on, on this question. Do you partner with a retina surgeon and ever do a combined procedure where, you know, you have a patient that's complaining of floaters and wants a premium IOL and have that retina person in there take the floaters out at the same time you do the cataract surgery? You know, in that specific scenario, no, I never have that combined phaco floaterectomy that's performed. Um, you know, certainly there are scenarios where we'll do combined phacovitrectomy for a different pathology, but whereas it relates to floater surgery, I would much rather, you know, just go ahead and take care of the cataract surgery, see how the patient does, and then decide what to do if the floaters are more bothersome. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes you look in and there is this really amorphous large cloud and you can tell by the patient's description that the fluctuating vision isn't from an evaporative tear film, but rather that this big gray cloud just keeps getting in the way of their vision. They can look away, they can blink, and it can you know, kind of float out the way, but it comes right back in and it really gets in the way. So those kind of patients who are extremely bothered by it, yes, I'll have them have that floater um, potentially evaluated first, yes, potentially addressed first before I do a lens implant. But that's really in a patient, like you mentioned, that might be interested in going and moving forward in the direction of um, a presbyopia correcting IOL technology after everything is said and done. And this is not uncommon now, you know, we know that baby boomers actually have 60% of that um, disposable income. And they, you know, especially during this time, patients value their vision so much more, um, particularly you, there's an emotional component to it. So definitely they, they want to be able to take care of their vision in the best way possible. And independence is what they're looking for and, and perfection is what they're often achieving for. From a retina standpoint, does it make it tougher to, to do cataract surgery on a vitrectomized eye? Yes, uh, doing cataract surgery in a vitrectomized eye is harder because you don't have the vitreous uh, supporting basically the uh, anterior chamber of the eye. And it, it's almost like doing, oftentimes like doing uh, a cataract on a highly myopic eye. Uh, but, you know, I do a lot of combined cases uh, myself, uh, but I do not recommend doing a combined premium IOL and fluoroectomy, just because you really want to, you know, do it separate. You don't want to have any... Uh, any risk of anything, you know, going wrong, 
so I, I agree with Elizabeth that it's better, it's best to have them get the premium IOL and then deal with the floaters because it may happen. You know, it's very hard to assess. When you have a patient with vacuoles, for example, in the lens, it's very hard to assess if, you know, the spots that they see uh, in their field of vision is from the vacuoles or if it's from the floaters. So I think it's just best that, you know, to tell the patient, look, let's get the cataract done and then we'll see how you do. And if you are still bothered by floaters, then, you know, something can be done about it. Uh, the other thing that I think is, is useful is for the anterior segment uh, surgeons to actually focus in the slit lamp in the anterior vitreous, because oftentimes the large sheets of opacities uh, are usually more in the anterior vitreous and can be readily seen really well at the slit lamp. I think those are both great points. And I, I agree with you, Maria and Elizabeth, in the aspect of I don't like combined cases where we do cataract surgery and floater removal. Uh, I usually will bring in a cataract surgeon to take the cataract out and it really doubles or triples the amount of time. Uh, we operate with ingenuity and therefore we have to switch out scopes because the anterior segment guys don't always like to use the ingenuity. Uh, and so it really complicates things uh, from, from that standpoint. And I've had cases where the, just having the cataract out, either the patient is less symptomatic now because the cataract's gone or their vitreous separates a little further and they're no longer bothered. So I, I think it's wise to say, hey, don't try to tackle two things at once, especially two seemingly very straightforward surgeries uh, as it can get pretty complicated when you, when you do them both. So Elizabeth, back to the premium IOL aspect, uh, are there any newer technologies in intraocular lenses that may be less impactful when it comes to patients' floaters? Sure. Uh so now we're very fortunate, whereas before presbyopia correcting lenses were all diffractive lens technologies where the light was always being split with the rings. Um, in the last year, there have been new lens uh, implants that are, uh, have been introduced where there are less of the rings, there's a stretching of the light. So if you would, you know, it's more like a second generation extended depth of focus lens. Um, Alcon makes one called the Vividity. It's wonderful. It does give that distance to about 60 centimeters. So that computer intermediate length without having all of the diffractive rings. So it's like a, it's a refractive, um, uh, IOL that has just maybe one subtle ring that creates a stretch of, uh, of that uh, focused light. Now with that, I think that would also make visibility easier for the retinal surgeon if the retinal surgeon does have to go in and perform a vitrectomy for whatever reason, just because you know it behaves and looks more like a monofocal overall, which is great. And then now, you know, things are getting unique. We are moving into these enhanced monofocal lenses where patients who may not be the best candidates or are not opting to go with necessarily a full presbyopia correcting lens can have a little extended range of vision. Um, and that's with like, for example, the Technus eye hands is a, an enhanced monofocal, but it doesn't give as much range as you would if you were moving into the presbyopia correcting lens class. With all this being said, I'll tell you, we're going to be moving towards lens technologies that are going to be full accommodating, and that should happen probably in the next 
you know, three to five years, I surmise. Um, but until then, if you are looking for that fullest range of vision, it's all going to be diffractive. Um, it's all going to be light splitting. And now we're in that trifocal well. And Elizabeth, for those fully accommodating lenses, will we need to have the vitreous present for those to work properly? Ah, interesting. That's a great question. And we'll only know, at, uh, you know, over time, because you're absolutely right. I'm not certain if having the counterbalance support of the vitreous provide anything uh, as it relates to the actual compliance of the lens, if you will, if it will ball up better because of that counter-traction. So right now, based on the studies that are outside of the US in the small pilot population, it looks like probably not. But at the same time, I do wonder with a subset analysis over time, what we do recognize, you know, in younger versus older patients, if there is a better accommodative factor in those who are pre-vitreous, you know, with, uh, before their opacities or cinoresis forms. And in closing, I'd love to get just one thing, Elizabeth, that as a premium IOL surgeon that you would like to let retina surgeons know about your patients. If we have a patient with uh, vitreous opacities and they are uh, you know, seeking out premium lens technologies, it's so important on the anterior segment side that one, we're doing the best job possible in trying to gauge the personality, but two, please understand if we are sending patients to you for vitreous opacities, those presbyopia correcting lens patients, I have seen a world of a difference because they can go from 2020 miserable to 2020 ecstatic because that vitreous opacity has been removed. Um, so, you know, if it is safe, if it is a procedure that can be done, if it is an obvious opacity that keeps centralizing within the vitreous cavity um, in a patient that we do send, you know, please give it some serious consideration instead of waiting too long or having them return for follow-up visits if you find appropriately um, that, you know, that you would be willing to take care of these patients sooner rather than later. So Maria, from a retina surgeon standpoint, what would you want our anterior segment premium IOL surgeons to know about these patients with premium IOLs and vitreous opacities? Well, I think it's important for them to know that there is actually a treatment for their complaint of floaters. I oftentimes see very unhappy patients that had premium IOLs because of the floaters, but they haven't been referred out. Uh, and I think it's because, you know, in the past, floaterectomies uh, were not that commonly done. But I think now with the advancements in technology and small gauge, I think it is a really, really good option, as Elizabeth said, to make these patients really, really happy. Uh, many patients are severely impaired by their floaters. It really affects their jobs. It affects their driving at night. It makes them feel unsafe. And floater surgery has really come of age and it has become a safe and very efficient uh, treatment modality. So certainly we all have our pearls of wisdom that we could offer to one another and to our colleagues. Elizabeth, what are some pearls that you would offer uh, other ophthalmologists, optometrists about dealing with patients and, and floaters and multifocal lenses? 
Sure. Um, when I'm looking at like a multifocal lens implant, and if a patient has just, they complain of a little bit of floaters here and there, and I know that they've got um, a posterior capsule that is wrinkling or pacifying, I mean, I definitely try to take care of it. But I always leave a little tag at six o'clock because I've been burned. When I did full capsulotomies, it exacerbates the floaters. And in some patients, it certainly does sit in the anterior vitreous and makes their floaters that much worse. And that's the nidus for why I have to send them to the retina surgeon. So I created the problem, essentially, even though we talk about it, we never want to be the one who creates that problem that we discuss that's going to be a side effect that should get better over time and it doesn't. So that is something I would, you know, like to mention, especially because you think you're in the free and clear after they're healed from their post-surgical regimen and they're happy for the most part. And then this can happen to you. And Maria, Elizabeth brings up the posterior capsule uh, from a, from a retina surgeon standpoint, how should we be dealing with that? Well, uh, I always, like you mentioned before, I always remove the posterior capsule when I'm doing a vitrectomy, not only for floaterectomies, but for other vitrectomies too, because when you, if you, if it opacifies later on and you have to remove it, you're going to give the patient floaters. Uh, but I think the main pearl that I have in all of this is to take the patient's complaints seriously particularly the anterior segment uh, surgeons, because the most unhappy patients that I have actually seen are those that feel blown off or abandoned. You know, they just say, oh, you know, you look great. You know, you're seeing 2020 and they have all these complaints of floaters and nobody, they don't, nobody takes them seriously. And they feel, you know, they just think they're neurotic or whatever. And those patients really have complaints. And just because you know, we can't really appreciate how impaired they are. It doesn't mean they, they are not. And I think, you know, we have a safe, uh, fairly uh, straightforward procedure that we can offer them. I do vitrectomies with 27 gauge, uh, which the openings are minimal. It really takes about, you know, 20 minutes. It's a very short procedure. And uh, the post-op regimen, like you mentioned, just uh, with ointments is really straightforward. And quick. And you know, I think one of the big things too, as a pearl for our anterior segment surgeons uh, from a retina standpoint, is to really acknowledge your patients that have the floaters. These patients really don't get frustrated by having the floaters so much as they, they get frustrated by being put off and told it'll get better. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And then sometimes years later, they find out there is an option. And and that's when they're really disheartened and I think lose some some faith in their uh in their doctors. Yes, I agree completely. I think, you know, uh, we have to put ourselves in our patient's position and understand that many of them maybe have visual requirements that, that other people don't have. You know, they may be accountants, they may be pilots, uh, they may drive at night and be exposed to a lot of glare, and we really have to take their complaints seriously. That's it for this episode of Vitreous Opacities. I would like to give a special thank you to our panelists, Dr. Maria Baracol and Dr. Liz Yu. Be sure to subscribe to New Retina Radio on whatever podcast platform you use. We'll have more from this series coming in the near future.
it's it's really great when you get a progressive anterior segment surgeon paired with a retina specialist or a group of retina specialists that gets it, you know, and they identify the patients really effectively. We've got a group or two here in town that do a great job, do a great job with cataract surgery, premium IOLs. And then if those patients have a problem, they come in and yep, they've been there for six months. Yep. They're affecting their activities of daily living. And yep, they're very happy after they have their surgery. And it's shocking. I mean, and they, and it's just like, and I'll explain to them, you know, it's still sutureless, you know, it's not, there's, there's real, there's really no real post-operative concern. It's drops just like you had with cataract surgery, but you'll be so much happier with your quality of vision. And, and it doesn't change their astigmatism because in the past, when we were doing sutured, sutured uh, uh, vitrectomies, it really altered uh, their astigmatism. So that was a concern and it doesn't, it doesn't anymore. And I see so many unhappy patients that are really mad at their anterior segment surgeon because they just sort of blow them off. They say, oh, you know, there's nothing we can do. It's, you know, you have to get used to it. And, and it's just the floaters. You're right. It's, it's not that they, that they have the floaters. It's that they've been blown off about them. Truthfully, yeah. Honestly, it's, that's upsetting. Two things that I've found very important. Number one, open their posterior capsule. I, our, our anterior segment guys never care if we open their posterior capsules because they don't oh, yes. want them to I have always, a floater yeah. after yags. And the second thing is, and we've been doing this now for, for four or five years, we just use ointment, uh, BID for a week, no drops. So basically the patients don't get CME unless they have an epiretinal membrane that's there and asymptomatic, no drops. We do for all of our patients, we do antibiotic ointment for one week, twice a day, and that's it. And it's crazy to say this, but actually for every surgery, we only do ointment twice a day for a week. Whoa, we're not messing with the anterior segment. So we don't toy with the iris and we don't get CME. I mean, we just, it, we don't. So I imagine my, I think about my anterior segment colleagues and, and how they would kill to have a one week regimen. Yeah. And, and we can do it. And we've actually, we published a poster at Arvo this past year where we looked at, I don't know, 300 cases and we had no increased risk of endophthalmitis and we had no increase in CME after our cases. And that's for all comers. And, you know, and we as anterior segment surgeons, we're constantly looking for ways to go dropless or less drops, you know, and as you know, there are different delivery devices and depots of steroids, et cetera. All of them have pass-through issues and, you know, none of them are be all end all, but it will be great to have something that is safe, effective, and cost-effective too, that can be utilized in a large medical ophthalmology surgical practice. Yeah. And yeah. it's just ease of use for our patients. They just yeah, want it. $4 absolutely. erythromycin ointment for a week and that's it. Hey everyone, it's John Kitchens. Go back in your new retina radio feed to hear my conversation with doctors Christina Wing and Steve Houston, during which we discuss specific surgical innovations that have made surgery for vitreous opacity safer and more efficient. For now, I'm John Kitchens. Thanks for listening.